When we were thinking about how to kick this podcast off, I actually looked up the word innovation. It's the subject of this series, as well as its namesake intensive at the Center for Innovative Thinking at Yale, Innovation from the Inside. But you know what I found? That innovation was, quote, the action or process of innovating. Not very helpful or illuminating. Not when innovation is, as far as our team is concerned, a practice. A set of principles and repeatable habits to be infused in organizations large and small in service of incubating, developing, and launching the new and transformative. My name is Matt Hooper, and my own experience in innovation has evolved in parallel to the adoption of innovation frameworks by many of the largest corporations in the world. For decades, corporate innovation meant placing an emphasis on product solutions, as companies like Xerox and Bell Labs built sophisticated R&D groups. By the middle of the 2010s, however, there had been a swing of the pendulum away from pure product development to innovation thinking, to, yes, the development of innovation as a practice. In major startup ecosystems like San Francisco and New York, London and Tel Aviv, Mumbai and Toronto, this meant that founders and investors were no longer the only participants in the development and support of new businesses. And also that new businesses were no longer the sole source of new ideas. Because during the same period of time, telecoms, banks, CPG and beverage companies all formed entire business units dedicated to enabling the practice of innovation. Change was afoot. My experience as a startup founder led to my time as Vice President of Open Innovation at the Barclays Investment Bank, where I learned the challenges of innovating from the inside firsthand, and where I also connected with dozens of colleagues across the corporate innovation space. My colleagues and my peers at other large companies were building a brand new ecosystem, whether we knew it or not. One where corporate goliaths could be as nimble and creative as startup Davids. For the past three years, I have been running my own business, helping some of the largest companies in the world tell their innovation stories via video series, podcasts, and live events to startup audiences. And I have encountered time and again the same exciting trend. What was once the realm of Silicon Valley disruptors and product-focused corporate R&D labs is now an essential part of doing business in 2020 and beyond. So, wait, I can imagine what you're thinking. If innovation is not actually the action or process of innovating, <laughs> but rather this set of principles in service of the new and transformative, this practice, then can it be implemented in organizations large and small? To find out, we invited corporate entrepreneurs from a diverse array of companies, from e-commerce to financial services to insurance, to speak to our students. This podcast serves to demystify this new corporate innovation ecosystem via a collection of interviews with some of the most forward-thinking entrepreneurs in the world, as well as relevant lectures that serve to remind us all that innovation can be achieved anywhere, even, or perhaps especially, from the inside. The following is a clip from the very first lecture we developed for our students, which focused on the importance of building a structure and defining a problem when launching your entrepreneurial venture. This session was entitled, dreams. Hey folks, frequently I am asked the difference between working for myself and working for a large corporation. And when I'm asked this question, it's always in such a way that implies that they know the answer already. That I'm going to say, oh, entrepreneurship is tough, but at least I have the room, the flexibility to innovate. Let me be clear. Innovation is not limited to startups. Many of you will have an idea for something unique, something truly innovative, and will go on to join large, labyrinthine, and multifaceted corporations. 
So what? Does that mean you can't ever launch anything new or game-changing? Of course it doesn't. In fact, entrepreneurship begins exactly where entrepreneurship does, with the identification of a problem. There are plenty of differences between the two paths, sure. Least of all the job security that comes with corporate employment, or the high risk of building your own business entirely. But let's start first with the similarities. Before we qualify, or dampen, or obstruct your dream, the world will already try doing that many times over. Let's learn how to launch it. One of the most valuable assets for anybody at the start of a creative venture is structure. Creativity isn't just about the lush green fields or wide open white space we so often hear about. In fact, on the contrary, it requires a sense of confinement. The idea that you have to build something within a finite amount of time and space. Pressure helps. Heck, it makes diamonds. The first bit of helpful, generous pressure comes in the form of specificity. Any successful entrepreneurial endeavor came from solving a specific problem. Sure, the biggest startups may have scaled eventually, but in the beginning their scope was extremely and necessarily narrow, structured, confined. Long before Google was the world's largest advertising company, they wanted to organize information. Long before Facebook was as big and successful a company as it has become, it was a way for college students to talk to one another in semi-private networks. In fact, if we look to the Lean Canvas, that most helpful framework for launching new ventures, and apply the principles to Google, you'll see how targeted the company's focus was in the beginning. Problem, irrelevant search results of existing search engines. Note how this isn't a business model yet, or even a business case. In fact, it's barely an idea yet. It's just a problem. This rule holds true for entrepreneurs, too. It's the very same first step. Ask yourself, what problem am I solving? And how specific is that problem? If you're looking to work with a new software supplier, for example, that's not really an innovation from the inside. That's an improvement, sure, but not an act of entrepreneurship. An entrepreneurial problem should also be put through the Lean Canvas ringer. It's a sort of smell test for genuine innovation. Let's take a recent corporate innovation and try it out, okay? Disney Plus. The problem, Disney is not making money from streaming its own content library. There's nowhere to launch smaller scale, non-tenpole movies and TV series. Again, this is an example that doesn't begin with the Disney C-suite saying, hey, it'd be pretty cool to build our own Netflix. It doesn't begin with a call to spin off an entirely new business from the parent corporation. It begins with a problem. What problem are you trying to solve? Okay, you've defined your problem, and you might even think you've hatched a solution. Should be cool. But how can you validate it? As is the case with any entrepreneurial endeavor, an entrepreneur must find stakeholders to validate their work. And it is here that I must confess I have intentionally waited to build up to this next point because it's perhaps the most important thing we'll learn all semester. It's a concept I've learned the hard way, unlearned, and relearned again. Being an entrepreneur means carrying multiple, often contradictory ideas in your head at any one time. And none is as important as this. An entrepreneur always has an extra set of stakeholders. Your colleagues, your managers, heck, even your manager's managers, these folks are either the final users of your innovation or they are along for the ride while your innovation reaches an external market. Either way, they are a puzzle piece unique to the entrepreneurial journey. How do you build something from within a hierarchy? Well, you'll need to mobilize and incentivize your colleagues, peers, and bosses. They will provide you with your first validation. 
Perhaps it's by approving a budget for you to build a prototype. Uh, perhaps it's by helping you find other sources of support. Either way, the work of an entrepreneur is teamwork, always. Ultimately, your colleagues, these corporate stakeholders, are the pressure I was talking about. Figure out how to incentivize them and you'll make that diamond. Two days after posting this lecture to Canvas for our students, we sat down to interview our very first guest speaker, Jeff Hoffman, the co-founder of Priceline.com, a Yale alum, and an executive with years of experience as both an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur. He picked up on a lot of the themes we established in our lecture for this dream session, providing choice examples of how innovative ideas are encouraged and nurtured within a large corporation, and shared his own experiences in the realm of corporate innovation with our 75 students joining us from all around the world over Zoom. We are thrilled to be able to welcome Jeff Hoffman as our first speaker in this intensive, who also has been an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur, and who I think has among the most exciting perspectives on where and how innovation can happen within big institutions. So uh, if everybody's ready, I'd like to kick this off by saying, welcome, Jeff. Thank you for being here. And, uh, and I think that this next round of, of questions will hopefully help to explain not just your background, but the importance of innovating from within. Thank you so much. I am so excited to be here. So you said something the other day in a pre-interview, spoiler, we've spoken to Jeff before. He <laughs> uh, uh, used a phrase called info sponging. Uh, as a means of collecting data points. Now, I, I had never heard this phrase before. I've been thinking about it sort of obsessively. Perhaps in that way, I also, like a sponge, took in the, the info you sent our way because I've been thinking about it a lot. What is info sponging? All right, I am gonna answer that, but I wanna tell you a really short story first. Uh, when I was at Yale, I honestly couldn't afford to be there. Uh, divorced parents, financial issues, uh, and I was gonna have to leave uh, so instead, I started a software company just to fund my Yale education, and I found a dark room in the tunnels between Davenport and Pearson, the residential colleges underground, and made it my office, and I was writing software in a little company, innovating a new ideas, and I landed a customer in Japan, which was Toshiba. So from the tunnels under Yale, I was actually developing products for Toshiba, and I got caught, and I got called into the president's office, the president of Yale then was Bart Giamatti. Uh, and he literally said to me, you can't run a business on campus. And I said, first of all, two of your professors work for me now. And I said, uh, second, what is the output of Yale? He said, Jeff, this isn't you for you to ask me questions. I said, just answer the question. What is the output of Yale? And he said, productive members of society. I said, okay, then stop bothering me. Um, and he <laughs> sat there quietly for a minute. And he said, here's what I'm gonna do. And I thought he was gonna kick me out of Yale. He said, I'm gonna give you some office space on campus so you can run a business because I appreciate that you were just being creative and finding a way to fund your Yale education. That's how I got through Yale, running my own software company on campus. So info sponging. This is what I, uh, Matt and I kind of wanted to set the tone for, uh, uh, kind of the definition of what innovation is and how it works and the company's uh, that do it best, what is it they're doing differently than everybody else? And I wanna say this, what I noticed by looking at the world's most innovative people and companies, big and little, is that the, the standard definition of innovation is somebody says, let's innovate, they appoint an innovation officer, 
and they look internally at their business, how it runs today, and they try to find a way to improve it. I'm going to give you a quick example in a second. Please. <clears throat> the most innovative companies I noticed take time, they schedule time to go see what everybody else in every other industry is doing and see if they could steal, or I should say adapt, a really brilliant idea from another industry and be the first to use it in their industry. So I'll give you a really quick example. Many years ago, this is a true story. Uh, this was in the fast food business. There was a, a, a fast food company, a hamburger place that was not growing and not, and, and so the, the boss of the CEO of the chain said to the internal team, he appointed an innovation officer and he said, we're not growing. We're not selling more. We're not building more franchises for our cheeseburgers. He said, innovate. So they internally looked at their business and said, how do we make this better? And inside they said, well, we can't make French fries faster because you can't heat the grease up. We can't fill Cokes faster because they splatter. So they said, we have no ideas. They looked internally at their company to figure out how to innovate it. One other person there said, I'll be back in a few days. They said, what are you doing? He said, I'm going to go see what banks are doing. And they're like, banks don't serve cheeseburgers. And he said, I just want to see if the rest of the world has a good idea. True story. Again, he went driving around. He visited some banks. The first few, he didn't learn anything. But the fourth bank he went to, there were trucks in the parking lot with piles of wood and hammers and nails and carpenters. And he said, what are you doing outside the bank? And they said, we're innovating. And we came up with a cool new idea. And he said, what do you call it? And they said, as soon as we finish it, we're going to call it the drive-through window. And he jumped in his car and he drove back to his fast food place. And he said, oh my God, I just saw a really cool idea at a bank. So the first drive-through window in fast food industry history was born not by anybody in the food industry. It was taken from a guy who saw a bank building one. That company was recognized for its innovation in the first food service fast food window by Ray Kroc, the founder of McDonald's. He bought that company and it became McDonald's. He rolled it up because of their innovation, which was an idea they did not get in their industry. So I'm telling you all that to say that here's what info sponging is. I have this technique that I came up with to emulate that. Every morning, I take 15 minutes of every day and I challenge myself to learn one new thing a day that is not in my industry. One new thing, if you guys, if you can't do this once a day, do it a couple times a week, once a week. So what I do is I sit down for that 15 minutes, you do not work in your industry. You're not in healthcare anymore. You do not work for your company. For 15 minutes every day, you're gonna learn one new thing that somebody else in the world is doing that seems cool, catches your attention, and I write down one sentence, one innovation that I read about somewhere else in the world. And if you think of each new thing you learn like a puzzle piece, sure. if, I, if I gave Matt a piece of a puzzle and said, Matt, what is this? He'd say, Jeff, I don't know, it's something blue. If I gave him two or three pieces, he still wouldn't know. But if every day I gave Matt another piece of this puzzle and every day he moved them around on his desk and looked at them, one day Matt would say, Jeff, I know what's coming. This is going to form a castle, uh, an Irish castle. So the best innovators collect knowledge from all the industries around them, stare at it every day and say, what can I make out of all these new ideas that no one in my industry has thought of before? And the most innovative ideas I've ever seen have all come 
from that type of innovation. So Matt, that is what I call InfoSponge. You learn one new thing a day from a different industry, write it down, and try to assemble these puzzle pieces at your company in a way that no one in your industry has ever done yet. Thank you for sharing that. Um, least of all, because now we all know that McDonald's is directly inspired by the financial services industry. <laughs> and, 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 also, and also where you kept your office in college. I mean, I think like now I feel less, now I, now I feel better about my own water closet office during those years. <laughs> Thank you. It's all about perspective. Uh, but but <laughs> when, I, when I am at my most hopeful, I like to imagine this kind of blue sky thinking, overtaking um, as many different uh, 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 business units, departments in a large corporation as possible, right? Like how can we all be so open to this that we are taking our 15 minutes a day or 15 minutes a week in the case of, of uh, you know, certain corporate executives to stay, to stay open-minded. And I get really excited when I think about that because yeah, you leave yourself open to influence, right? How do I leave myself open to influence and open to new ideas. How do those innovations come, come to me, right? You hear songwriters talk about this a lot. It's like, I'll open the window and a melody will come in. Like that's, you just have to be ready and know when inspiration strikes. Uh, the eureka moment can't necessarily be planned. Now the other part of me thinks, well, as a corporate executive, I am so rarely incentivized to be innovative my, my, my bonus is tied to not really being innovative. I'm not exactly trained to think outside the box. I need to worry about my bottom line. If we're a publicly traded company, I need to worry about not just our customers, but our, but our shareholders. If we're a private company, it's the same thing. Your shareholders are just far, far fewer. So how do you, uh, I guess, keep driving towards the bottom line while leaving room for influence? Because I think that's going to be the central tension of not just this intensive, but of so many of the careers that are going to flourish for these students as soon as they, as soon as they uh, either enter or re-enter the workforce. And, uh, and then I'll come back in a few minutes and follow up on that because it has very much to do with COVID, right? But how do you stay open to influence while also focusing on profit? and focusing on customer satisfaction, all the other things that you're required to think about when you work at a large corporation. So uh, that is the, the central theme, uh, that, that tension between innovation and quote, making our numbers. And it's a structural issue. And I, I went, many companies will say, we're, we're totally open to new ideas, uh, but in fact, it's not in their DNA at all. So I was at a major, a Fortune 500 company. Right, I'm totally open to new ideas as long as I don't have to have them soon or do anything about them yeah yeah or right or change anything we're doing. change anything yeah. and they can't interfere with our actual operations which is sure. a ridiculous proposition so i'm at a big company fortune 500 and the ceo says no we're open to new ideas i said really i said come with me so i took the ceo i went to engineering i got an engineer and i set something up and i took the engineer um with me over to marketing and this is what we staged i had the engineer walk in the marketing department and, and like, it was almost like when he walked into marketing, alarms went off, intruder, alert, engineer in marketing, right? And then they're looking at him like, are you lost? And he said, no, I have an innovative idea that I think will save the company millions, but I need to know our, how we, our marketing plan, how, our marketing plan. I need to see the marketing plan right. to make sure I'm positioning my idea right. That's what I staged. When he went into marketing and the CEO's like, our, our company's real open to ideas and innovation. The marketing people said, we don't tell you how to do your job, go home, go back to your department. Mm. And he said, but this idea will save the company millions. And they're like, he said, I just want to see the marketing plan. 
And they said, we'll run marketing, you run engineering, leave. And he said, you won't show me the marketing plan? They said, look, that's not your problem. You just do your thing and we'll do ours. And he kept saying, but my idea might save the company millions. And nobody wanted to help him. They wanted, had to make their numbers, their agenda, and they were telling him, we don't tell you how to do product development, don't tell us how to do marketing. I had the CEO hiding outside, listening. And I said, that's your definition of innovation. <clears throat> and Matt, it's the reason that you said, human beings, of course, react to what management is measuring, and they react to how they're being compensated, and they're not being compensated for risk-taking. Right. The whole infrastructure is around making your numbers. So if that is the fundamental structure and DNA of a company, those companies don't get innovation. So can I share my favorite example of- Please do, of yeah, and I have a follow-up on that because you're, spe you're speaking to things that are so deep in the way we go to work that I think only examples can help. So please, yeah. Yeah, so I'm gonna give my uh, Whirlpool example. Um, <clears throat> when I ask you guys to name some of the world's most innovative companies, you'll name Google or Apple or whatever, okay? Um, probably none of you would say Whirlpool. Whirlpool makes washers and dryers and blenders and how electronics appliances in your kitchen. Yet, almost over 80% of all the new innovations worldwide in the like household appliances industry are coming from this company. Why? Because they solve the structural problem of compensating people instead of creating the tension. Let me just very quickly tell you what they did. So we said it's structural because your company's not built to, to take risks with new ideas. So here's what they did, which I've had companies all over the world do that I've helped them set up. First, form an, they formed an innovation committee. That was a representative from every discipline, finance, accounting, human resources, product development, marketing. Somebody from every department is on the innovation team. Now here's what they do. They meet once a month. Employees anywhere in the company submit innovative new ideas that they've thought of, even crazy ideas to that committee. The committee reviews all the ideas, but here's where it gets different. What they did was first of all, they made everybody's compensation uh, two parts. One part is your performance of your department and your job, but the other part is the company's overall performance. So if you're doing great product development, but sales isn't selling it, your half your bonus is in trouble. If right. sales is out there doing its job, but the product sucks, your bonus is in trouble. So everybody has a portion of incentive for the company's overall performance. But here's what they do with that committee. They seed experiments and they promote them. So uh, Matt, uh, Preeti has an idea and Matt's on the committee and she presents it to Matt and the committee says, oh my gosh, Preeti, your idea is really good and it might work. So what they do is, Preeti is pulled out of her job for six weeks and she's sent to the innovation lab. She's given a small budget. The company funds small experiments, $7,500 in six weeks. And she said, convince us this is feasible. You got six weeks, but you know what her employee, her teammates do? <clears throat> they don't complain. They say, Preeti, we got your back. We will cover your work for six weeks because we're so excited that you might come up with the next brilliant idea that makes our company an industry leader. So culturally, the teammates are like, go pretty, go. They don't complain about doing her work because next right. time it might be Victor that has an idea and Preeti's covering his work. So they created a culture 
where you want your teammate to have a brilliant idea to go over to the innovation lab. You're given a small amount of money to prove your experiment. If it works, they roll you into the product development process. You might go back to work your previous job or you might be part of the new team. And if it fails, your teammates say thank and management says, thank you so much for trying. We love the ideas, keep them coming. They have an infrastructure that rewards ideas, seeds experiments, and supports people for trying to prove a little feasibility study. It is a brilliant structure. and It is why they are a worldwide innovator in their industry. Two weeks after Jeff Hoffman joined us, we posted our next lecture to Canvas, which corresponded to our second session. Here, we focused on structuring unknowability and managing for change. Two key ideas in trying to take the dream you've had and, well, yeah, turn it into a reality. This session was entitled Details. Two weeks ago in our first session, we covered some very important ideas around originating and gaining internal support for your innovation. And at the end, we kind of summed it up around four points, right? Um, build a structure for your creativity, identify a problem, validate your solution with stakeholders, interview those stakeholders and build empathy for their own challenges. Today, we'll be discussing the details that make it possible to build an entrepreneurial culture. And I'll start this discussion with a question. Do you still think the future can be planned? I don't know about you, but if you told me one year ago that we would be devastated by a global pandemic with industry after industry becoming entirely upended, I would not have believed you. If you'd told me that the long in the making trend of working remotely would be accelerated with major corporations from New York to London to Hong Kong to Mumbai having to reconsider whether or not they even keep their corporate headquarters at all, I would not have believed you. But despite the intense amount of belief that goes into launching a new innovation, this isn't about belief. As I said, the last session was about the dreams. This session is about the details. Structuring unknowability. It's the first section I want to discuss with you. And um, you'll remember that last time we also talked about the importance of structure. And in fact, I recapped it just a moment ago. And structure is a, a theme of current importance uh, in any creative endeavor, frankly, but specifically when you're operating within a, an ensconced, established structure as all entrepreneurs are. Even if we did not have COVID to contend with, we would still be forced to reconsider how we plan for our future. For the last decade and a half, we have seen what can still charitably be called the digital transformation, though really it's been more like a digital upending of the workplace. Fixed hierarchies, so often modeled on industrial era workplace behaviors, have begun to flatten. You're speaking in an industrial era parlance. This is still how we refer to management structure because it harkens back to the days of working in an assembly line, right? To industrial age terminology and thinking. But what happens when your product is no longer assembled? When it is supported or created outright by lines of code? What happens when ideas take hold not from the top down or even from the bottom up, but from anywhere? Well, things get a lot less vertical and a lot more horizontal and it becomes much more difficult to plan. In fact, so much of the incentivization conversation we had in our last session stemmed from this antiquated challenge, but we are still forced to manage up, to convince senior stakeholders of a project's value. So a new challenge is in store for entrepreneurs the world over, organizing and synthesizing the ideas and contributions of your colleagues. Because looking up and down the chain of command, that won't work anymore. In an information age, 
where you can no longer rely on industrial era hierarchies, the challenge will be to draw inspiration from an environment that is becoming restructured in real time. After all, we don't yet know what an entirely successful 21st century org chart looks like, least of all because it will probably include far fewer people than we're accustomed to seeing in a corporation as automation becomes an increasingly important part of our professional lives. But we do know one thing, at least one thing, that being able to organize your inspiration, to piece together the best ideas around you, to make sense of the fluidity of creativity and a rapidly flattening org structure is the key to success. This is in keeping with what we talked about in the first session that creativity thrives with structure. Where structure doesn't exist, create it. So no, we can't really plan for the future, at least not in the traditional industrial era sense, but we can give structure to all its unknown surrounding us by collecting and organizing the best ideas, no matter where they come from in your org. If this doesn't allow you to plan for the future, it does the next best thing. It allows you, your innovation, and heck, the corporation you work for as a whole, to have a future. As entrepreneurs, you are not just combating corporate inertia, you are combating the very same forces as the executives up and down the chains of command. They're also realizing that the chain itself is unspooling. They're also realizing that rigidity makes innovation or even continued competition impossible. The difference is that you are looking to build something new. So for many of your colleagues, this complicated, ever-changing reality is all that they can see as they go to work each day. But for you, it's just the background, the context for launching something great. Prepare for an unknowable future. Build a structure for collecting the best ideas around you, including your own. Don't be bound by rigid plans when considering new opportunities and say farewell to hierarchical management. If these ideas were as simple in execution as they are in theory, we'd see far fewer blockbusters or codecs. You, the entrepreneur, the corporate innovator, are here so that you can do what the very name of this intensive suggests, innovate from the inside. But in order to launch your dream, you are being asked to address dozens of important details, which include altering decades of corporate best practices and established thinking. You are being asked to do something that is as difficult as it is exciting. You are being asked to unlearn and relearn. Ultimately, successful entrepreneurs don't merely innovate from the inside. Successful entrepreneurs change the inside entirely. Two days after posting this lecture to Canvas for our students, we sat down to interview our second guest speaker, Alana Foss. Alana was the US FinTech platform lead at Barclays, and in a nice twist of fate, the day she spoke to our students marked her very last day at the bank. So she was in a particularly reflective mood when she joined our students, and her description of working to launch something from within the hallowed halls of a corporation was a perfect illustration of the sort of details we alluded to in our lecture. Alana and I never had the chance to overlap at Barclays, but she is a powerful force in the world of corporate innovation, and it was our absolute honor to have her address our 75 students, joining us from all around the world, over Zoom. I am really thrilled to welcome our guest speaker today, my friend and now yours, Alana Foss. Alana, this is a... Uh... Also a historic day in your own life. If you want to give a little bit of background on what you get to do all day long and why today is such an important day in your journey, uh, I think that'd be a great place to start. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks so much, Matt. And um, to everyone on the line, it's amazing to meet you. I hope you're, you and yours are all staying safe and healthy. 
um, during such crazy times. So um, I currently manage um, Rise New York, which is Barclays corporate innovation platform in Manhattan. Um, I actually started out in Tel Aviv, building out our um, innovation hub there. So my focus for the past five years has been on corporate innovation um, for Barclays. And Barclays is really unique in their model where they recognize how difficult it is to innovate internally and really look for solutions and products in the market. And my job would be to kind of integrate amazing startups and entrepreneurs, entrepreneurial ideas with the correct stakeholders at Barclays. And we'll go so much more into detail on that um, with Matt. Um, Matt alluded to why it's, you know, a momentous day. This is, I'm actually moving on from my role um, today and moving to a new banking role um, in and at a different banking firm. Um, so really excited to kind of end these past five years in corporate innovation with this look back at some of like the best successes and definitely some of the failures too, because I think we can learn a lot from both. Definitely. Um, and full disclosure, uh, the first on-site Barclays manager of Rise New York was myself. And so Alana and I have seen, I think at different ends of this story, this particular entrepreneurial endeavor. And as we've said, we talk about corporate innovation that is obviously the subject of so much of this, but I think creating entrepreneur as a sort of job title, right? So you're not just corporate innovators, you're specifically entrepreneurial. That's been a real point of differentiation here. So Alana, what brought you into entrepreneurship? What brought you into Barclays in the first place? Um, because it is an unusual challenge, right? This idea of innovating within a given structure. And Barclays, founded in 1690, is not exactly a lean, hot, young, agile firm. So as, as we both know. So, so I guess what inspired you uh, to look to entrepreneurship as a career path and what was the first sort of moment you realized that the Barclays structure was so fixed, right? That you had no choice, but to, but to work within because uh, there's no working from without in, in that sort of situation. Yeah, definitely. Um, great question. So I actually started my career in the Israeli military. So I'm Israeli American. Um, and part of being Israeli is that you have a mandatory um, military service when you're done with high school. Um, and for me, I served, I had a really unique role um, for someone that was fluent in English and in Hebrew. And I got to serve in, um, it was called the diplomatic corps of the military. So I was in charge of all relationships with the US armed forces um, and any kind of joint, any joint operations we would do together, any joint diplomatic, um, you know, things we would do between the Israeli army and the US armed forces. And going in so young um, to such an important role, I was just really outspoken, maybe naively so in the way I thought things should be done. Because um, I just didn't know any better. And, you know, if I saw something and I thought it should be done differently, I was going right. to Right, but that's it. often an asset in those situations, as I'm sure you probably learned. It's like, you, you, you don't know what not to do. So, you know, may as well take the risk. Yeah, exactly. Um, they, you know, the, I think gumption or the Israeli, you know, the Hebrew word is, is chutzpah. Um, is like very important when it comes to entrepreneurship, because you have to be willing to tell people that are more senior than you and that manage your salary, um, that they're doing it wrong or they were doing it wrong and you have an idea to make it better. Um, and to figure out how to say that in a way that actually shows them that they can be positioned in a better way and it's their win. That's mm -hmm. something that I had to learn early on. And I was lucky in the military that 
I couldn't be fired. I could definitely be moved around if they didn't like me, but um, it was a really safe place to kind of, to go in with that mindset and actually have some amazing wins that I was able to then take that with me to Barclays. Um, similar, huge place, very bureaucratic, um, very male dominated also like the military um, and somehow managed to, to go about it. And I think, and I don't know if this is something that you're touching on in this, but I think for women in large corporates, that want to go and change things, we have an additional challenge of, um, you know, we have additional challenges too. So there's definitely, I, I know that it, it, you know, it comes into play with how we have to go about pitching our ideas and convincing people to, to listen to us and knowing how to do that early on and be effective at it. That really helped me at Barclays. Rise, which is the co-working uh, brand that you're talking about was built as a separate entity created by Barclays in order to prove out this model that you're talking about that's unique. And there were, there were at one point in a number of countries now, I think there are three active sites, am I correct? There's, there's New York, Tel Aviv, Mumbai, oh no, four. There's uh, no more Tel Aviv, so it's Mumbai, New York, and London, right? Got it. Correct, correct. Okay. Um, well, I just wanna be, because I think that, so again, one of the things you could do as an entrepreneur that an entrepreneur can't do is you have instant access to scale. Like this was, uh, a small idea that grew very big, very quickly, um, but was not your traditional innovation model because it wasn't actually internal. It was, it was an open innovation plan. Can you speak to that and sort of how that evolved? Definitely. Um, so, so our, um, what we wanted to go about proving five years ago was um, we didn't need to, you don't need to be an employee at Barclays in order to innovate and um, make an impact on the products that we are offering out. Um, so we, we figured that we saw fintech booming, um, you know, and, and this works across all verticals, but we really saw this within fintech. We saw fintech booming. We wanted to partner with these entrepreneurs. We knew that they wouldn't necessarily come work for a Barclays. Um, they had their passion projects. They had their startups they were creating, but we wanted to be able to work with them. Um, so whether it was investing in their startup or hearing them pitch and then attempting to become their first client um, as a Barclays, that was a really, um, that was an ambitious goal for us and something um, we did really well, but it definitely took a couple of iterations until we learned how to do it perfectly. Um, so we launched these four corporate innovation hubs. We did amazing events, hackathons, things that would just bring entrepreneurs to the sites. Um, and then afterwards, it was about working with each entrepreneur on a personal basis and seeing if their product could be a good fit for Barclays. And this idea of creating an open innovation plan, like, like did, did this help to encourage entrepreneurial thinking among the executives who's buying you needed? Or did they feel like, oh no, we're working with active entrepreneurs, active FinTech founders, they can be creative, we can keep our day jobs and, and not take risks. What, what was that point of intersection like? Because the incentives you're talking about, we did spend a lot of time talking about that in our first session, um, because it's wildly important, right? But the, the skeptic in me says, okay, we're working with all these exciting entrepreneurs. I am not an entrepreneur. I'm a managing director, you know, on the ops and tech team or whatever. Uh, I don't need to take the risk, but I can gladly give a thumbs up, a stamp of approval to the startup and kind of go back to my, to my desk. Um, had you found that? What was the tension like? How did you fight that? Uh, th those are the things Great I know question. that are on our minds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so originally we were, we just wanted to sell them on the idea of open innovation in general. So it was about getting them physically so out of their offices. Sell your colleagues on the idea, you mean. Exactly, exactly. Selling, 
internally at Barclays, um, you know, Barclays is a 300-year-old bank, over 80,000 employees, very risk averse, as we need to be um, as a bank. So um, just kind of selling them on the value of partnering with entrepreneurs in the first place, that was our first challenge. And there's something about physically leaving your office and coming into a rise space, which is designed so differently, we would give them, I, I know this sounds dumb, but everyone loves a free t-shirt. Um, everyone loves, you know, you feel the energy of the entrepreneurs when you sit down with them and everyone wants to feel that passion in their role and that excitement. So that was something, it was really contagious. And I think sometimes executives would get overexcited in terms of, you know, this is an amazing idea. We need to partner now. We need to make this happen. And maybe sometimes oversell it to the entrepreneur in terms of what we could do together. And then my job would be to really make sure we have clear expectations on both sides. And when someone at Barclays says, we need to get on this immediately, that's a three to five year roadmap for an entrepreneur. They're expecting a contract in the next, in the next six months. Um, so making sure that- Before the 2030s at this point, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, if we decide to do a big product change at Barclays, it's integrating that into our roadmap. It's stakeholder buy-in. It's our entire procurement process. Um, it's, it's a massive roadmap if we want to actually make changes within the firm in the right way. So making sure that entrepreneurs understood that, were supported along the way with anything else they might need at the same time, or maybe we're partnering with smaller banks before actually getting to the point of contract with, with Barclays. That was my role was to kind of make sure they had those, um, they had that transparency and clarity into the process of partnering with a large bank. The dreams we talk about in the first lecture and then in our interview with Jeff Hoffman are scaled by means of building out the details that we address in the second lecture and touch upon in our interview with Alana Foss. Your dream of launching an innovative idea can come from anywhere. Just think of Jeff's McDonald's example, how the very concept of the drive through came from a bank. But your idea will die without not only the room to be creative, as we discussed, but also the stakeholders and colleagues you need to incentivize, and the chutzpah that Alana wisely points out we all need to succeed in a bureaucracy. Your entrepreneurial dreams cannot be realized without the details, without the hard work, without breaking a sweat in the process. <laughs> On our next episode, we will be chatting with Anne Mette Toftegard of LB Group and Barat Krish of Time Magazine about how to turn your business into a platform and why in the post-COVID era, everyone is an entrepreneur. We'll catch you next time here on Innovating from the Inside. Thanks, folks. <laughs>